Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. What's going on, everyone? It's the MBK Podcast with me, Tom Marvin, and my co-host, Rob Weaver, the man who knows everything about mountain biking although he hates it when i say that really do <laughs> <laughs> and joining us in this podcast is our guest jcw it's cost it's james costly white the big dog the head honcho of mbuk how's it going cost he's really big right, in a mug yeah man. i know he's gonna hire a hype man i'm a hype man because i don't know what else i'm gonna say in this podcast <laughs> this <laughs> that's not quite true this episode uh we are talking about the visionaries who pushed the tech of mountain biking so the the men and the women behind the tech that really made mountain biking and mountain bikes what they are today so we're going to start we're going to go chronological on this one because it kind of makes the most sense and in this and so we are going to start with the OG, the man behind pretty much everything to do with mountain biking, and that's not quite true, but a man who had a huge influence on mountain bikes, Gary Fisher. I thought you were going to say James. Oh, <laughs> the big dog himself. He's not that old. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not going to dwell on like the really old stuff too no. much, because I think that story's been told so many times, mm-hmm. but just for those who are kind of new to it, Gary Fisher was one of the two people who first started the, the repack race in Marin County, California. Uh, where people made clunkers, which are basically modified beach cruisers and town bikes and rode them super fast downhill off-road. Um, but he had the vision to see that this could be about more than just a little gang of hippies. Um, so he founded the brand Mountain Bikes with, oh, now I'm forgetting, uh, Tom Ritchie was building the bikes mm-hmm. and Charlie Kelly, I think, was his business partner. So they came up, well... Again, this, this is a... This is a potted history where we're going to annoy some people. Yeah, it's a controversial point whether he made up the name mountain biking or not, but he certainly called his name Mountain Bikes and popularised the name. And he produced the first kind of custom... Oh, what's the word for it? It wasn't the first custom bike. That was the Joe Breeze, Breeze number one. But it was the first kind of production The first mountain like mass bike. market. Well, it wasn't really mass oh. market. This is the thing. It was the first production mountain bike. Okay. Uh, it would be specialised in Una Vega who bring out the first market mountain bikes. But Fisher had the vision to come to popularise the name mm-hmm. and to see that there was more to this than just this little scene mm-hmm. and to push it globally, I guess. Okay. But it's not just that, that that's not the only reason he's in this podcast. It's also because he continued to have a massive influence on the sport. Over quite a bit of time as well, wasn't it? Over, over decades, yeah. yeah. I mean... He went on to found Gary Fisher bikes, which would be taken over by Trek. And with them, he pioneered new geometry, trying to get away from the kind of road focus, long stem, short top tube approach. And he also pioneered the use of 29-inch wheels. Um, wasn't necessarily the first person to use them, but was certainly the first person to put them on a, a big brand bike. Mm. The Hi-Fi or the Super Hi-Fi, I can't remember what it was now. And yeah, he's kind of moved away from... Uh, the tech side of things a little bit now, but he's still a real visionary when it comes to urban transport. If you if you want a good read, his uh, yeah, his biography. biography. I can't remember what it's called, but Guy Kesterman Guy wrote it, didn't put he? it together? Yeah, yeah, our old tester, um, and it is a really good read. And he's got some really interesting thoughts on on urban transport and the future of mountain biking in mm-hmm. there. 
Probably not enough photos of his uh, moustache or cool suit, though. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think of all the early group of writers, he's the one you'd probably call a visionary above okay. all others. And then... Maybe Mike Sinyard too, though, right? Well, that's what I was coming on to, yeah. So Gary had the vision to see it was bigger than just this scene. Mike Sinyard, the specialised, had the vision to see that it was potentially a massive new market segment, mm -hmm. you know. Bought out the specialised stunt jumper, you know. Wasn't just the right machine at the right time, but it had a cool name. It looked good by the standards of the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe not so much looking back on it now. It looks very old school, but at the time it, it did look really cool. It was well spec and it was well priced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how much was it? I think I looked it up. It was like it was maybe like I think it was maybe like eight hundred dollars for the whole bike. Okay, maybe a little bit less. Something like that. Maybe? Yeah. So it wasn't you know it wasn't cheap, but it was compared to buying a custom built steel frame mm -hmm. and specking parts from all over the place from motorbikes and Asia and like the previous you know custom builders have had to do. You know this was a proper mountain bike. Yeah. And then when Shimano uh, then got interested in this whole new off road scene that was developing. That took things to a whole other level. But we're talking originally about fully rigid bikes, aren't we? Yeah. So at this point, bikes are fully rigid um, and tires are skinny and don't offer much comfort. Um, you've got steel frames. So if they're well built, they can be a bit of give, a bit of um, vertical compliance, as we like to call it these mm. days. Um, but often in those days, there's a lot of lateral compliance as well. And they were quite, it could be quite noodly. <laughs> few ghost shifts here and there exactly yeah Excellent. so I, I think that was the next big thing really wasn't it, it was suspension well yeah so the likes of paul turner yeah yeah the rs1 which everyone's talked about loads in the past but a very very significant yeah milestone in in tech and again there were other brands developing suspension forks for mountain bikes but rock shots were the ones who really got mm. the tech and the marketing and the the rider sponsorship right and really pushed it forwards the rs1 it was about 1500 grams and we, as i sort of said it's you know an air sprung fork with a bit of fancy hydraulics it was a similar weight to manitou had a fork at the same time which looked pretty cool mazaki were around but everything else think, was around two kilos and... i think manitou was maybe a little bit later yeah and mazaki's were pretty early but the early forks were very sort of spindly and mm. yeah the z1 yeah. must have been around sort of night five night six yeah and that's, That's it. A lot, of, a lot of other brands were kind of dealing with elastomers still, mm -hmm. whereas Rock Shots were doing air springs. They were doing, you know, oil-based damping from from the start. Really. I mean, mm -hmm. they had cheaper elastomer forks as well, but they were pushing the high-end tech while mm -hmm. also making stuff affordable relatively for for riders without the budget to buy the top-end stuff. I mean, we could go on about this for hours, but obviously, yeah. you know, they went down the route and of developing the boxer. Yeah, and if you remember that, you know, in the around the mid '90s, certain downhill riders that were sponsored by them would be on these unusual forks that you couldn't go out and buy. Yeah. Some of them that had single crowns but longer extended upper tubes in order to fit all the hmm. damping cartridges and things in, and then eventually an upper crown. Well, and they brought out here. the Judy, which at, when it came course, out yeah. was mm. kind of the burliest single crown you could get. It was pretty quickly superseded by the Mazaki Z1. Yeah. in terms of damping and stiffness. But it, it was still, I think, to market before the Z1. When was the Mag 21? I might be corrected by this. Oh, the Mag 21 was, I don't know, 91 or something? Yeah. The Mag 21 came straight after the RS1. RS1. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, these guys really pushed the front suspension forwards. And obviously, slightly later, the rear suspension began to be the big thing that brands were focusing on. 
And I think we have to give a shout out to Horst Leitner here. So mm. he's the guy behind the famous Horst Link, which is a four bar linkage with a, a pivot on the chain stay just ahead of the rear axle and just above just the rear below, axle. Right? Oh, below it, is it? Yeah. Below. below and, yeah, Sorry, yeah, below, yeah. Up, yeah. Um, and this really was the first rear suspension platform that that properly worked, I guess you could argue. You mm. know, brands in the 90s and 2000s experimented with a lot of different designs. And, you know, later things like the twin link system used by, well, Santa Cruz and uh, Mondraker and various other brands mm. were pretty successful. But there were also a lot of designs that didn't prove successful. You know, we're talking unified rear triangles uh -huh. and, <laughs> and all kinds of stuff like that. So, so for Horse Lightning to actually bring his system out in the mid '80s, I think it was. I think it was 1985. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still being used today. And in fact, you could argue it's the platform of choice today ever yeah. since the patent expired. I think everyone sort of associates the Horse Link with with Specialized because they owned the patent for so long. But actually, you know, he bought it out in '85. He was a motorcycle engineer. He wanted to get rid of brake jack and try and isolate pedal forces from suspension. And he created the AMP research brand. Yeah. Um, and he licensed it to Rocky Mountain, Turner, Titus, and then sold it to Special. He then basically had the rights over it for 20 years, whatever it was. It was until 2013, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And then that's when all of a sudden the European brands that were only selling in Europe mm -hmm. yeah. with that horse link design were then able to branch out sell you know over into north america and it's then when some of the north american brands who were using some form of single pivot with a linkage to actuate the shock then just switched yeah and had a horse link instead because it arguably is a better ride um so massive yeah huge huge i mean you know until until that license expires you know most Brands that looked like they had a linkage bike really had a single pivot bike with a linkage between the shock and the rear mm, axle. Mm. Whereas now, most most bikes, I'd say a majority of bikes, have a proper linkage now where the, the wheel path changes as well as the... Um, it's certainly become a lot more prevalent. Curve, the leverage, yeah. 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 What about slowing down, though? Well, we saw, well yeah. I mean, Because we saw... That's a good point. When we started Canty Brakes, which then evolved to what v-brakes yeah three, and then you know if you if you i mean v-brakes when they came out were revolutionary the, the braking was oh. so much better mm. than a, a normal canty but they would still clog with mud yeah if you buckled your wheel they still didn't really yeah. work that well so at the same time various brands were developing disc brakes for mountain bike use um i mean obviously we had magura brakes yeah i mean magura, magura formula were yeah. all there quite early on but then so were the uk's hope you know they were there right from the beginning sponsoring some top racers I mean, and, they were the choice. If, if I think, yeah. like, if if you would ask pro racers at that time what they would choose for brakes, it would probably be mm. hope, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I read some of the at one point the top twenty in the British downhill series all ran Hope C two brakes when they first sort of came out in yeah. sort of the early nineties. And uh, you know they weren't they were one of the first, but also the brakes looked really cool, didn't they? That's part of the appeal. And this beautifully machined. Yeah, mm. they weren't just mass produced in some factory. They were. Well, they weren't. They weren't mass produced in the factory. But you know what I mean? They were sure. machined. They weren't yeah. cast. And and that CNC aesthetic sort of continues today. You know, they're one of those sort of everlasting brands that hasn't really detracted from. They haven't been watered down. They haven't been bought and sold. They they still bang out the same yeah, stuff yeah. that they've been doing for so well, long. While also, yeah, while also getting into bike design. Mm. And they back then they were and carbon fiber. Yeah. In terms of the brakes themselves, back then they were probably the most reliable as well. Mm -hmm. When I I just remember racing. 
and other people having all sorts of issues with other brakes from different brands and then struggling to get the parts if they'd bought them from some exotic shop over in mainland Europe when they're on holiday, mm -hmm. there's no backup. Whereas yeah. Hope, have, you know, even now, I think you could probably give them a call and they've probably still got the spare parts for mm. all the old, you know, C2 brakes and whatever else they've made over the years. Yeah. Which is really cool. And, and obviously why um, the likes of Alan Weather or Simon Sharp need a mention in this. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, from back, you know, the, the motorcycles, you know, trials and motorbike, you know, racing, they kind of came in and just went, well, this isn't good enough. We can't rely on these no. crappy canties or V-brakes. And I think that's particularly with the rise of downhill in the mid-90s. You know, as, as downhill started to become more popular than cross-country and bikes started to mm. evolve, they needed better stoppers. And I think in terms of bikes evolving, you know, I think you can probably say, certainly in downhill, the in Intense M1 is probably the first proper downhill bike isn't it so jeff stever from intense californian guy had the vision while a lot of people were saying oh you know suspension's okay for downhill but not for cross country he thought well that's nonsense you know i'm gonna make a trail bike that's full suspension and that kind of evolved was that the taser i can't remember now I think it was the spider the spider yeah of course i think it went from the spider to the m1 yeah and then he, he switched the suspension slightly and the m1 was so good and so well, so much better than most other bikes at that time. Well, that's, that's why so many brands teams, rebadged it. Yeah, right? a ton of teams were running mm. intenses rebadged. Tomac was on a giant, but was an intense. Yeah, mm -hmm. the um, Athertons were on Muddy Fox, but which was intense. actually intense. Yeah, the Harrow was essentially an intense that Mike yeah. King rode, um, and later Minar. And it was, you know, it was the modern downhill bike in it, almost its finished form. In fact, MBUK were on intense, but. When they rode for Jamis. Oh, yeah. So they were all badged up. Yeah. Jamis. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was on them. Yeah. Definitely a pivotal bike. Mm -hmm. And then what would you... Oh, sorry, Tom. Oh, no. I was, I was going to sort of move on from Jeff Steber, but mm. if you've got more Jeff Steber on it. No, no, that's... Well, and they're about... They've just relaunched the M1. Yeah. Yeah. The new bike, which was called something like the M2... M2 M279HP6. It rolls off the tongue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So understandably, they just went... What would what would really uh, catch the imagination <laughs> of people? Probably not that. Let's go with M1. <laughs> nice. Did you, did you ever have an M1? Nope. No, I never did. Always fancied one. My mate Stu had one. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was wicked, but I think he spent so much money on it that he couldn't um, he couldn't ever drive to any races, so he just had to hitch everywhere. So <laughs> he, he didn't really make it around that far, but didn't make many friends. <laughs> it was a great bike, though. <laughs> so I mean, if the M1 was the kind of visionary downhill bike what was the trail or cross-country equivalent do you reckon i mean i guess is it worth sort of talking about the likes of max Cummensal and you know cern and, and, and all that sort of stuff yeah that's a good point actually while we're on downhill so i mean rob you know probably more about this than any of us well so max Cummensal started out in bmx and um as momentum sort of got behind mountain biking later in the 80s early 90s he started developing mountain bikes himself mm -hmm. um and for anyone who isn't old like us they probably won't know but his team at the time the sun team had some of the biggest most influential riders and racers mm -hmm. that have ever graced the sport of 
of downhill. I mean, he started, so he, he had he had an amazing BMX team. Right. But it was when he hired uh, Francois Gachet as the, the sort of the lead rider on the team. And Francois Gachet asked if he could bring on this guy who was really into suspension, a motorcycle guy called Olivier Bossard. And Bossard came in um, with the approach that he wanted to create the ultimate bike and and worked with Commencel, Max Commencel to pretty much engineer it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he built the suspension himself, the fork, the shock, everything was done by him. You know, you couldn't just pop out and buy this yeah. from your local bike shop. This was sort of, you know, proper, proper factory level stuff. As the team got better, they hired more riders, the likes of Nico Vulios, uh, and Caroline Chausson, Gracia, Sabrina Jonier, um, Mikel Pascal, and pretty much everyone on that team was a world champion. Right. Um, so when it comes to CVs, it doesn't really get a whole lot better than what these guys can offer. And um, Bossard and Nico especially were renowned for testing. Mm -hmm. Everything from, you know, he would he would run maybe one clipless pedal, one flat pedal to right. see if, you know, if, if there's more turns to the left, he would run that in muddy conditions because he knew he was going to hang his foot out more. Yeah. Uh, they were forever changing stuff like spoke tension in order to try and get the wheels to grip a bit more, mm -hmm. constantly revalving shocks. He was one of the first actually at those races to use data acquisition. Right. To measure what the suspension was doing, what the, you know, what the brakes were doing when you were braking, all of those sorts of things that are kind of commonplace now. Mm -hmm. He was the, I would say probably the pioneer when it when it came to that stuff. I mean, and their approach was just next level professional. Mm -hmm. You know, they got some stick for it. Nico was, you know, he wasn't there at the after parties. He wasn't there getting, you know, properly pissed up and riding with a hangover the next day. He mm -hmm. was focused on winning and and my God, he won. I was thinking it sort of all paid off. I mean, is it Bossard's responsible for around 20 mountain bike world titles? Yeah, I even think maybe one in cross country as well. Uh -huh. And, you know, since he sort of, he still sort of dabbles with mountain bike suspension but the big thing when he tried to sort of mass produce it and he he kind of lost that ability to do it in-house and maintain that sort of that quality control then it, it just didn't work yeah. to the same sort of scale we're talking he, about boss suspension here right? yeah yeah so he he very much needed to kind of control it and, and look after it himself and mm -hmm. and um it's what he's always done mm -hmm. you know he's had Tons of success in stuff like the Paris Dakar Rally, mm -hmm. WRC, so World Rally Championships, um, where again he worked with Nico after Nico retired and got into rally driving, as you do. Mm, well, yeah, um, that's what we're going to do next. Is it? Well, that'll be good. <laughs> See what the Ford Focus is capable of. <laughs> but yeah, so he clearly knows his stuff. He's 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 been around the block when it comes to suspension. Mm. And when I went to visit visit the factory, visit his um, his his unit down in uh, Toulouse or just outside Toulouse. It was so cool. It was like, if you've ever watched um, Indiana Jones, you go into the warehouse at the back and there's all of these moments in history almost. Mm -hmm. And up on this top shelf, there was a bike from almost every world championship right. that had won a title. And we got them down, had to sit on them. And even today, they still feel like the suspension felt incredible yeah really special stuff yeah, yeah genuinely and you speak to the riders fabian morel cedric gracia 
those guys have said to me before just that nothing stuck to the ground like it. Mm -hmm. You know, they were they were head and shoulders above what almost everyone else was riding. Mm -hmm. They knew instantly that their bike was just quicker yeah. than everyone else's. And it was just kind of down to them. It was them. If they messed up, it wasn't the bike's fault. Yeah. It was purely rider error. And, and this is back in a day when, you know, issues like dropping your chain mm -hmm. was quite a frequent thing. Keeping air in your tires, stuff like that. They were just, yeah, leagues ahead in that regard. We we sort of started chatting about Bossard via Max Commensal. So is it worth looping back to Max? Because, you know, he founded Sun. Sun sort of went and did its thing and it was hugely influential in terms of downhill and won all sorts of stuff. In recent years, Commensal really has been the brand or the bikes to beat in the World Cup downhill scene. You know, they, they don't do uh, they don't do carbon fiber stuff. They're stuck with aluminium. They they have high pivots. They were one of the early adopters of 29ers and they've had like in the past sort of five years, the biggest names, both in, in Endura, but also especially in downhill. Like you go to a downhill race, you can almost guarantee there's going to be a common cell or three on the podium. Well, I think um, it's a bit sad, really. So Max obviously founded the company Sun. And then I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know. So I think once they gathered investors on board, they ended up voting him out. Right. For whatever reason, they probably just wanted to make way more money. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they went bankrupt in the end. It didn't work without him. But he kind of shrugged it off and just went off and set up common cell bikes. Yeah. And he is, when it comes to racing, he is, I mean, he's at every single race. Yeah. He is the most, he must be, you know, one of the most passionate people in the industry. He sponsors, I don't know how many teams it is now. Five or six teams, right? Yeah. They have their own dedicated test track mm -hmm. which has sections from you know that they think they can emulate different sections from different world cup tracks all around the world yeah they put god knows how much money into it mm. because they really want to win it's like a true racing brand absolutely and he re you know he really supports the rider i mean i'm guessing there's probably a bit of pressure that comes <laughs> with that but it's so cool to see someone you know it isn't just about bottom line making cash yeah. using it as a marketing tool he is like he was from day one truly passionate about getting people on his bikes and letting them race mm. i've been on a couple of common style launches and you know obviously you tend to be sort of i guess looked after more by the marketing people on these things mm. but you know he will make an effort to come and see you to come and say how's it going you know like I've been on a couple and he remembers who you are. Like he's so passionate both about the racing, but also about his bikes and his brand. It's mm. really, it's got his name on the down tube. Like you're going to assume he is going to be pretty passionate about it, but he's a real, you know, he's sort of definitely one of those little heroes of the sport that I sort of have. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, moving on to sort of other people who are clearly very passionate about their bikes and, you know, have made a name for themselves in, in many ways. I guess you can't talk about modern mountain biking especially when it comes to sort of the geometry and the shape and all that sort of stuff without mentioning Chris Porter. What a guy. <laughs> I mean, I've known him for years. He helped. So Luke, who, who, who we work with, he helped Luke and I out. I guess I was a junior and he helped us out with suspension. He was okay. developing a cartridge for a couple of different forks at the time. And he was like, stick it on your bike. Let us know what you think. Mm -hmm. um, and working alongside us with that stuff, which was, you know, for him to put any kind of faith in us was yeah, kind of insane at the time. But, but really, really cool. And 
a bit like, I, I guess, you know, a bit like Max Commonsell, Jeff Steber, so passionate about seeing people using his stuff, mm -hmm. succeeding and, you know, being part of that process. And he has gained a reputation because he's been, you know, very outspoken about things like suspension performance, but probably more so geometry. Yeah. And through his search for yeah, a bike, his ultimate bike, he has basically ended up creating his own brand. Mm. So he's he's been working with the guys at Nikolai and created Geometron bikes. Have you ridden one, James? I'm sure. Well, I've not. It, no, I'd it'd like fit to. You perfectly. You would. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Like from the point of view of a taller rider, ten years ago, no bikes really fitted me that yeah. well. And thanks to people like Chris and the guys at Mondraker, you know, now an extra large is actually a decent length. I guess that's yeah. <clears throat> we should probably go back to Mondraker almost before we talk about Chris in, in that mm. sense because he was working with Fabian Burrell doing all the suspension stuff. So Fabian was sponsored by Fox but not necessarily getting to do maybe everything he wanted to do mm -hmm. with Fox. So Chris stepped in and as the Fox, the UK Fox importer would say, okay, I can do this. We'll modify that. We'll modify this. Did all the testing with him and obviously got his chance to ride the Mondraker bikes, mm -hmm. which it was around 2011 uh, you, with the help of Cesar Rojo. So former world cup racer, you know, regular sort of, top 20 top 10 rider yeah knows his stuff also has a, a solid background in like automotive engineering and things like that mondraker took him on to develop a new concept or their new concept forward geometry and the idea was almost a bit like the proper proper early days where they're looking to move away from road bike influence geometry take some of that length out the stem mm -hmm. add it to the frame create a more stable, um, better handling bike, but with still, you know, super reactive steering. Um, the initial, I don't even know if they called it forward geometry initially. I think when I saw it and rode it as a prototype, it was dubbed center stem because the stem was like okay. 10, 10 mil. mil. Yeah. <laughs> it was dinky. And it was, it, you know, and it was a really different thing to ride mm -hmm. at the time. But with the likes of Fabian behind it, Cesar and obviously Chris getting on. Chris could see the benefits in what they were doing. It wasn't necessarily widely accepted yeah. in the scene, but, you know, Chris was adamant that he was going to get a bike to fit him and, and he wanted it to work properly. And being as passionate as he is and the entrepreneur he is, mm. he was never one to just settle. Mm -hmm. He's a very brave guy that just will take risks mm. and he just went out and thought you know what it's going to cost me a ton of money but i'll get these frames made we'll see it we'll see if it sticks and we'll go from there and and that's how geometron bikes was born mm. more or less i'm sure chris will be able to add in a lot of the details in between i'm, I don't sure, think it I'm was, sure he would <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it was quite as simple as that but you know that once we started seeing the bikes and the idea behind it and and his level of customer service, all of these things that he really wanted to put right, these things that he, he saw, I, I suppose, gaps in the market. Mm -hmm. And the way in which he wanted to ride the bike is what influenced the geometry. And then mm -hmm. he's then trying to educate people and, and say, you know, okay, you can ride with a super slack head angle. It's okay if your bottom bracket is yeah. this long. It's it, The only reason it's like that is because 
you're using the equivalent of a road bike crank, which is this length, which it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And now slowly we're getting, you know, 155 more cranks, which mm -hmm. 10 years ago was totally unheard of. Yeah. I remember he got, I'm pretty sure he got hope to make him some 150s. Right. Back in the day when he was on, he was riding oranges. Yeah. So he's, he's in terms of visionary, he, there's mm -hmm. a lot to thank Chris for. Yeah. I think the, the one thing I always remember, well, know, I guess, about Chris was obviously when he ran uh, the downhill team with Ben Cathro on it. Um, like the one sort of anecdote that all six and I was Cathro saying that he was sort of asked to wear the skin suit. The, it looked like the black, black condom, condom yeah. skin suit. <laughs> yeah. And they were at Fort William and they'd been practicing in their normal kit. Chris Port was like, you know, obviously like aerodynamic. I mean, this is one of my bugbears with like downhill. Like, why are we not talking about aerodynamics properly? But anyway, Chris Port was like, right, aerodynamics matter. In your race run, you're going to wear your, your condom. And I'm sure skin suit. Oh, let's skin say suit. skin suit in case anyone anyone joins us partway through. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> what race was it? <laughs> Dog in world champs. <laughs> so Catherine puts on this like black latex suit and heads down the hill. And basically, from what I can tell, he he misses the first corner because he's going so much faster. He misses his breaking point. And he just pops off the end of the corner because he's going so much faster. You know, and this was a you know real thing that sort of Chris his performance was such like the end goal was speed. And performance and the outright sort of the the time and I think that's sort of one thing that really shaped geometry on bikes for me was that you know I've ridden them and like I, th I think it's fine to say that they're not for everyone mm -hmm. like but you get on them and the end result is you go faster than you maybe would have done on any other bike I remember the first time I rode one I rode one of his test tracks in Risca and it was a real wet horrible muddy day and I went down that track faster than I've ever been down that track, having never jumped on that bike before, because it was, the reach was probably 60 mil longer than anything else I was riding. The head angle was probably three degrees slacker than anything. And it just worked. And, and Pretty wild. And Chris was pushing the whole, you know, things like, why are we running this offset? Why don't we try this? Yeah. He was doing that way ahead mm. of everyone else. And, and I guess what a lot of people probably don't know is that the people behind the bikes at the other brands mm -hmm. were buying his bikes yeah. because they were like, all oh, right, maybe he's onto something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they weren't buying the bikes, but maybe they were, you know, making bikes, test bikes, test mules, similar to that. Um, trying the different offsets. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm pretty sure the guys at Transition had read maybe Seb's article that he did on offset testing mm -hmm. with Chris. And it's what sort of, spurred that maybe they were already doing that a little bit before but maybe it was that sort of validation that mm -hmm. made them think okay maybe we need to go down that route shorter, shorter offsets of the way forward yeah and then with sbg geometry yeah i mean the guys that specialized would ask me because they knew i had a geometron uh -huh. and they asked me all the time how's it getting on with it mm. what did i think about it all of this sort of stuff so clearly he had a wider influence whether it's ever going to be spoken about through the brands mm. it's hard to say maybe they want to take their own sort of mm -hmm. credit mm -hmm. for it but i think i think chris has had such a massive influence on all of this stuff and while a lot of people will say you know he's very opinionated and, and divisive yeah potentially he's also one of the nicest guys yeah. in the world you know not just in the industry in the world and he will help you mm. as much as he can mm. um you know, he's willing to have an argument, but that's no bad thing. And the thing is, I think he will always, 
he likes to test things, right? I think when 29ers sort of first became a thing in, in longer travel bikes, like he, he wasn't convinced. And I remember, you know, Seb, who used to work with us, was like, no, you've got to try it. And he did go back and he did try it. And he did build a bike to fit 29-inch wheels and then was like, hold on, hand. He, he was wrong. And he's like, actually, mm-hmm. they are fast. Yeah. He's humble enough to sort of accept that he does, he isn't right all the time, but he's willing to try it. He's a good guy. That takes us quite nicely actually back a bit. We've Ooh. talked quite a lot about how kind of downhill and enduro suspension geometry development has helped bikes evolve. But I guess you could say that that's all gone into... Oh, it has all kind of trickled down and, into other yeah. stuff as well. But I think there was a key point in the mid to late 90s where it seemed like full suspension was for downhill mm. and cross-country riders just wanted to ride hardtails. And I think we need to give Marin a bit of a shout-out, or Marin, as we tend to call them in the UK, Yes, they are sponsoring this, but I'm not just including them because of that. They were one of the first brands to really have a decent working cross-country full sus. Mm-hmm. The, the Mount Vision, which Paul Lazenby yeah. rode to the National Champs title. It was the first National Champs, I think, anywhere in the world won the full sus. Yeah. Huh. Um, and the guy behind that, I mean, the guy behind Marin was Bob Buckley, who'd also worked with Jeff Steber and Joe Murray and people like that. But the guy behind the Mount Vision was uh, John White. So Formula One engineer, turn bike designer obviously has a brand named after him but did a lot of work with marin as well mm. um and i think that bike was visionary insofar as it shows that full suspension did give you the advantage of a cross-country riding as well mm-hmm. and in fact it's only really the last i don't know five ten years that full suspension has become the norm in cross-country i guess isn't it didn't white make the what was it the 46 yeah well, white has some classics like PRS T1. Well, yeah, the PR- yeah. Well, of, exactly, course, of course, know. but the 46 was like the biggest selling, well, like one of the biggest selling four suspension yeah. bikes. Yeah. Certainly in this country, I think. But I think it's a combination of bikes like the Mount Vision and bikes like the Intense. You know, these are the two extremes. Mm. And the modern trail bike has ended up somewhere in between mm. those two, but incorporating the great suspension work of Bossard and the geometry stuff of yeah. Mondraker and Chris. And yeah, it's a real melting pot of everything. Mm. I also seem to remember like White had like travel and geometry just with like a little quick release thing at the end of the, the yeah, shop yeah. to just move into like a different slot. Like, well, yeah. that's why it was called the 46, right? Because it was four and four six. And six yeah. 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 Crazy stuff. Yeah. And I think before we sort of wrap up, it is certainly worth talking about Julie Furtado, who really sort of developed a whole line of, of women's bikes and recognized that, you know, again, it's been mentioned in, in, in the MBK podcast before how the history of mountain biking is dominated by men, but actually, you know, women play a massive part in the sport and increasingly so. And so it's been really important that we have, you know, brands and, and, and women such as Julie Furtado, brands such as Liv, who are developing bikes and concepts of bikes, whether it's, you know, the shape of them or the kit that's put on them that are really focused on on the needs of women. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think women have played an unrecognized role in mm. the history of mountain biking. Mm. You know, obviously, no, yeah, people like Furtado, but also just in terms of the racers and the feedback they've given to brands, you know, there haven't always been that many women out on the trails, but they've always been a healthy number on the XC and DH race scene. And yeah, I mean, they definitely have an impact on the bikes being made. Yeah, you speak to the guys at Trek and Bontrager and stuff like that, and mm. they would use Tracy Mosley all the time for mm. feedback sessions. Yeah. Because she was so good, so analytical. So I guess the question is going to be who is the next visionary? You know, what's going to, what's around the corner? What sort of, race genre is going to sort of dictate where mountain bikes go or is it going to be something like e-bikes which has obviously become hugely influential but 
I think that's a topic for series two of the NBK podcast. <laughs> Give us another yeah. series. Give us another series, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it is a good question. You know, geometry seems to have evolved more or less as far... Well, at the moment, we feel like it probably has evolved yeah. as far as it can. We might be proven wrong in five years. Suspension works. You know, bikes don't tend to break very easily anymore. You know, electronics, okay, yes, you can get electronic gearing and suspension now. May or may not be the future. But, you know, what is the next big leap mm. in mountain biking who's going to be behind it? Who's going to be behind it? And will there even be one? Yeah. Maybe it'll be you, James. <laughs> Maybe. Good yeah. work. Well done. <laughs> Great. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up on that. Um, so thanks ever so much, Rob and JCW. Uh, and we'll be back for another episode of the MBK podcast very soon. Cheers. Cheers.